2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 7. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. It's good to, to be with you again. Welcome to church. Um, Today is the fourth installment of a series that we've called Perspicacity, which I still have a terrible time with that, that word. Um, that word isn't really commonly known. Its definition, it's a noun that means the ability to understand somebody or something very quickly and accurately. So what we're attempting to do is to kind of push into things almost like Malcolm Gladwell's uh, uh, what is it? Revisionist history. Thank you. Uh, where he says, there he says, uh, we consider things that are overlooked and forgotten. Pretty good podcast, by the way. Um, but that's kind of what the series has been about. We've been looking at a lot of different things that are happening in our culture. Um, but today, this installment is going to consider something that it used to be a standing joke. I've worked on a couple of different talk shows over the years, and it was a standing joke that if, the, if, if no one was calling in, all you had to do is start talking about assurance of faith, and the lines just completely lit up. Um, there's only going to be three questions again at the end of the sermon. Um, if you do have any questions that you need to email me, my email address is james at l2today.com. Um, seriously, this, this, I, I'm really praying that this sermon would, be, would bring a lot of comfort to some of you. Um, I, I think assurance of, of our faith is something that is, it's so drastically counterintuitive that it, it really fits a discussion I had back in 90, 1992 when I was graduating from seminary. And one of my favorite professors pulled me aside and we, for some reason we ended up talking about assurance. And he said, I can tell you from experience that the assurance of salvation is so counterintuitive to what most people think that the people that have the most typically shouldn't have any. And the people, uh, the people that have the least probably should have the most. And so in the next 30 minutes, I'm going to completely turn your world upside down probably. <clears throat> but uh, yeah, with that, we're going to jump in. Um, so 
I, I want to kind of narrow the scope. There's a nuance in this today that I want to get at. It's not kind of the typical run-of-the-mill talk on assurance. We're going to establish a whole bunch of presuppositions that kind of get us to a place that unless you understand that, it's agony to be there. And we're going to have to do a little bit of work to, to get to that nuance, to get to that space where you can understand what we just heard. So I'm not going to say much about 2 Corinthians 4 until the very end. Okay? Um, as we narrow this, let's start by just narrowing it to Christianity. Because there's no possible way that, that we could... You've heard me say many times that there's not a single person in this room or watching online that doesn't have a whole set of faith assumptions working in your head. It's the only way you can make sense out of the world. That's one of the reasons that I think as Christians we need to be very careful when we refer to non-Christians as unbelievers because they're actually believing something. They're just not believing what you believe. And so in one sense, it would, the scope of trying to say, well, how does... A person who holds to Buddhism validate his faith. How does a, a woman that is a Hindu have any kind of assurance? There's no way we can, that scope is too broad. It would be a complete waste of time. But what we can do is look at what the Bible says that should be like buttresses to those of you that are Christians. Some things that you can look at to say, all right, by this I know that I really am a Christian. By this, I can actually begin to silence that, 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 that shrill of a voice in your heart that sometimes has to ask the question, when I die, will my faith actually save me? Now, I think that there's a lot of people in different circles, particularly in the United States of Christianity, that have never asked themselves that question, and we're going to get into some of the reasons why. And in that sense, they have rock-solid assurance. But then there's some of us that have taken our faith very seriously, sometimes even for decades. And there come seasons that are so haunting that we wonder if we can continue. And so we're going to get into this. I want to start by showing you some basic views of Christian assurance. These are the... If we were just going to kind of skim the surface, this is what all I would talk about. So I'm going to do this kind of quickly. Um, there's two basic views of assurance today. And the first one is just simple belief. I know that I have saving faith because of what, have I, what I believe. And there's a biblical basis to take that step. If you look at Romans chapter 10, verse 11, it's, it literally says, the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And so without question, you have to start there. You have to say that I can't have assurance of faith without knowing what I believe. I have to think critically about what I'm actually believing. Now, the second kind of basic system that people are holding to in regard to assurance is that the first one doesn't go far enough. It's reductionistic. And so it has to include belief and obedience. Now, mind you, as I go in, I, I can't do all the theological qualifications that I would like to do just because of the time constraints. God saves us by grace. And 
that's entirely his prerogative. And so I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about how a person who claims to possess that kind of faith actually knows, has some consolation or comfort of it. And the second system is a basic system that basically says, I know that I have faith because of my belief, but also because of my life, because of my obedience. Now, James was the half-brother of Jesus that wasn't even converted until after Jesus was crucified. And Jude was very similar. They were were half-brothers to Jesus. And so James became um, the leader of the church in Jerusalem after the resurrection and ascension. And he wrote, several decades later, the book of James, which is considered the Proverbs of the New Testament. That's how axiomatic it is. But anyway, in chapter 2, verse 14, he sa- 14 to 17, he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, some of you are saying, well, that doesn't seem like salvation by grace. And the best way that some of the, the, the finest theologians today could say, because Martin Luther wanted the book of James to canonize. He didn't want it in the Bible, because he couldn't reconcile James 2 with Romans 4. Now, to, a good way to understand it, and I'll just relieve some of the tension, is that in Romans 4, Paul's talking about coming into our faith. In James 2, James talking about after you're in. And he's saying, he goes on in the same chapter in verse 24, he says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. There are Christians across the world that hate that verse. If they could, they'd just white it out of their Bibles. That's why we don't hear very many sermons on it. And so, There's something about this. Now, John, in his typical fashion, um, which I think John was kind of mentored by Peter, who always stuck his foot in his mouth. But later on, when John was older and the things he wrote, they were so blunt. They were so just bald. And when John wrote of this, and he just cuts right to the bone, in 1 John 2 and verse 3 and 4, he says, and by this we know that we've come to know him. There's no mistake what he's trying to get at. He says, this is what tells you if you really know him, if we keep his commandments. And he goes on, he says, whoever says, in quotations, I know him. And so now he's referring to a person who claims to be a Christian. He says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. So you see, the first system of assurance, belief only, is reductionistic. It's true, but it's not all that's true. And so there's so much of the New Testament that is kind of painfully opening up how we have to look at our faith. Now, that seems like it would be pretty clear-cut. Pretty simple, actually. But the reality of it it is the simplicity of those two, two positions throws every single one of us on the horns of a dilemma that emerged in the American church in the beginning of the 1980s. It was called the Lordship Controversy. And some of you know, I went to the Master Seminary, and John MacArthur was the one, John MacArthur is the grandson of Douglas MacArthur, General Douglas MacArthur. 
He was, he was drafted, and he was All-American in two sports, drafted by the Redskins. So he, he, he's a pretty famous guy. And really, I have a tremendous debt of gratitude for him in his ministry. Um, but he was the one that started it. He wrote a book called The Gospel According to Jesus. And the way the lordship controversy framed this is by simply asking this question. Can you receive Jesus as Savior without receiving him as Lord? And it divided the country. It, it, it started a, a, a massive national furious debate. And those two positions are where it came from. One says, I know I'm a Christian because of what I believe, and another one says, I know I'm a Christian by what I believe and what I do. Okay? Now, throughout our ministry at L2, we've always believed that the Bible requires a Christian to find true assurance in their faith, what they believe, but also in the way they live. There's an act of obedience that emerges in a life that has faith at work in it. And if it, John, John 15, Jesus is the one said, I'm the vine, you're the branches, my father's the husbandman. Any branch that bears fruit, he's going to prune it, it's going to bear more fruit. Any branch that doesn't bear fruit, he's going to cut it off and cast it into the fire. That's not good. But he's just cutting right to this issue. Now, we're getting close to the nuance that I want to get to. We're not quite there. Um, so as obvious as those two positions might be, many of you, many Christians, including myself, tend to struggle from time to time with this nagging question, and here it is. What if I believe in Christianity and I trust Jesus to save me and I even possess abundance of evidence of obedience in my life, but I still have certain sins? that I've never overcome. What do I do? If Philippians 2 and verse 12 and 13, and Paul says, you need to work out your salvation by fear and trembling, which again is a little bit con contrary to much of what we hear today. And he said, for is it not him? Is it not God that's at work in you to will and to work according to your good pleasure? The Holy Spirit is bringing what Francis Schaeffer said, the gifts of the bridegroom back into the world through you. But what do you do when there's just something that won't go away? Something that you sit here week after week before you take communion and you, you ask God, you confess it and you ask God to forgive you. But it doesn't go away. And if it does, it's not for long. You see, these simplistic views sometimes don't get there. And so if you're the type of person that can ask yourself that question and you've actually gone through these seasons that are just so challenging this is for you now we're there to where we can begin to establish some things i want to start by looking at some crucial presuppositions about faith and work just a couple um, number one god saves sinners the bible tells us that clearly he doesn't merely make us savable he actually saves us paul wrote this in ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 and 9 he says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast. That's pretty clear. This faith, it isn't yours. It was just what, John, uh, what uh, James told us last week when he was talking about the parable of the sower. And he said, to you it's been given. And 
Jesus said it, and Paul is following it up three decades later when he writes the letter to Ephesus. And so there's this abundance of evidence in the New Testament that actually says God didn't just simply make you savable. He actually saved you. When you were dead, he made you alive. And it's the reason the half-brother of Jesus, who wrote the book of Jude, says in the third verse, he exhorts Christians to, quote, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So there's a faith that God grants to his people. And it's pretty much the same one. Does it have its unique expression and manifestations in our lives? Absolutely. But it's the faith once for all that was given to the saints. Now the second presupposition about faith and works is that saving faith actually produces good works. Going back to the verse that we looked at in 1 John 2 and verse 3 and 4, John gives a very clear explanation of saving faith. By this we know that we've come to know him. If we keep his commandments. And then he negates any misunderstanding of a kind of faith that won't save when a person has a profession and he doesn't have a practice. Whoever says, I know him and doesn't keep his commandments is a liar and the truth isn't in him. It can't get much clearer than that. There's no Greek nuances that we can look at to try to avoid the barb. It's just plain old, simple, basic Greek. If you say you know him and you don't keep his commandments, you're a liar. You're a liar. I hear that, amen. <laughs> and so, the fact that God put, grants us grace, he grants his faith to sinners, and the fact that saving faith leads to obedience causes a problem for the tender conscience. Because how do you know it's at work? How do you know if you're not faking yourself out? And so there's a tenderness here. Now, you, you have to begin to see this if you're just reading the New Testament. You have to. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, which everybody loves, in three chapters, at the end of it, Jesus says three verses that R.C. Sproul before he died. He said these are the most scary verses in the New Testament. In Matthew 7, verse 21 to 23, he said, not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord is going to enter the kingdom. He said, on that day, which is referring to the end of Revelation 20, the great white throne judgment. And so there, there's people that have been dead for years, that have been resurrected, that stand before the throne of God. He said, on that day there will be many that say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy and cast out demons and perform many miracles in your name? And he says, I will say, at least you believe me. That's not what he said. What he said is, I will say, depart from me you doers of iniquity. Profession with no practice. Exactly what we're saying. The tender heart reads those and it's just like, that could be me. That could be me. And so these presuppositions are really important to say, okay, we do believe that God saves us and he doesn't merely make us savable. He actually pulls us out of death into life. And then when that faith works in us, it actually brings fruit into the world. We believe that. The Bible clearly says that. So now we need just two presuppositions about remaining sin. Because now we're getting, we're peeling the onion back and we're getting to the very kernel of it now. The presuppositions about remaining sin help us frame our thoughts, not just simply about saving faith, 
in regard to how the Bible actually, what it does, it, it, it frames our perspective on what the Bible actually says we live like when we have this kind of faith. And it describes a remaining sin that without that, you can grind yourself to powder. Now, the first of these is that the battle against sin is intense and it's personal. In Luke 9 and verse 23 and 24, it's Jesus who's talking. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake shall save it. Now, oftentimes we read that and we automatically, I don't know if we have some picture you know, from the Middle Ages that we're carrying a crossbeam on our back or something like that, that we're, we don't actually get into the granular understanding of what he's getting at. Every Christian carries a cross. Every Christian denies herself. Everyone. And every Christian follows. Now, what he's really getting at are intense, resolute dispositions internally that we have as Christians that we're able to say, I don't trust myself. I'm willing to sacrifice, and I'm going to do what you tell me. And he says, if you, anyone that doesn't want to do that, don't bother. Don't bother. Now, this gets us close if you go back to Proverbs 3 and verse 5 to 8. There Solomon describes this in a way that's really helpful. He said, trust in the Lord with all of your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding in all your ways. I think this is probably the clearest biblical worldview passage maybe in the whole entire Bible. He said, with all of your heart, in all of your ways, inside, outside, in what he says, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. In all of your ways, acknowledge, think of him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil, and it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. That is remarkable, because what he's doing is taking you inside to the inner turmoil that happens when God basically says, you are me. What are you going to do? You are me. And Solomon is saying, don't dare trust yourself. And he's talking about a conflict that not only are a lot of Christians not even aware of, there's other Christians that think, how could I be, how could I be saved and be thinking of such an alternative to what God is requiring of me? But Solomon is saying, man, when you're there, when you're on that spot, just trust him. Whatever it is you're doing, trust him. Now, the depth and the nature of what I'm talking about right now, this internal conflict, it caused one of my favorite theologians, John Owen, to write this statement. And maybe from here you can access a little bit closely, more closely to what he's saying. He says, when Christ comes with his spiritual power upon the soul to conquer, to conquer it to himself, he hath no quiet landing place. He can set forth he can set foot upon no ground what, must, what he must fight for. Man, that, that gets it. Now, for some of you, 
Packer, I, there's a lot of people that believe that the finest that J.I. Packer ever wrote was at the introduction to the death of death and the death of Christ. I don't agree. His introduction to John Owens, sin and temptation, is so vulnerable. He talks about trying to scrape himself out when he got into a pietistic circle because he never felt like he was good enough. And the way he perceived everybody else, they were so good. This is a basing. The person who really understands this is never able to look down on anybody else, no matter what they've done, because you know you're more than capable of doing it. John Owen himself, when he was on his deathbed, he said, I fear that the seeds of every sin abide in my heart, every single one. So there's a lot that the scripture says about this battle against sin that is so intense and so personal. And most of the time, cordoned off from those around us. The second presupposition I want you to contemplate here is that the battle never ends either. And you think, thanks a lot. You subject me to the worst war I can possibly imagine, and then you say, good luck, it's never going to end. I didn't decide this. Now, we see from 1 John 1.8, this is one of the verses I think that Zach read at the beginning of the service. He said, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. That's like five verses before verse three and four. He says, by this we know that we've come to know him. The per he's basically saying, long and short, no tricky Greek again. John wrote in a very simplistic Greek style. That's why Greek students always start with John. And he just says, if you can say that you don't sin, you don't have the slightest understanding of Christianity. And it's exactly what... Solomon said in 1 Kings 8 and verse 46, again in 2 Chronicles 6, verse 36, and then Solomon said it yet another time in Ecclesiastes 7.20, there is no man that does not sin. There's none of you. And so every one of us theoretically should be suspended on the horns of this dilemma. Every one. So these two presuppositions about indwelling sin, they tell us that it's intense, it's personal, and it's never going to go away. Now, from here, you can probably get a little bit of a underneath peek at what Paul was writing at in Romans 7 and verse 24 when he said, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me, de deliver me from the body of this death? Now, a lot of you don't know the con context to what Paul is referring to here. Paul, his name originally was Paul of Tarsus. Well, as a little boy growing up in Tarsus, if you committed a murder, anything deserving of capital punishment, they would take your victim and tie him over your back, drape his body over your body, then tie his arm to your arm, his neck to your neck, his torso to your torso, his legs to your legs. And the first day, that was probably a little bit of a nuisance. But by the third or the fourth day, when the body began to bloat, it eventually ripped open, and all the enzymes and decomposition going on inside that corpse leaked out on you, and your victim killed you from the grave. That's what he's getting at. And he's able to kind of put it in this quick snapshot, and he said, who is going to cut this dead man off of 
He's talking about after, it's at least 20 to 25 years since he was knocked to the dirt blind on the way to Damascus. Probably the most magnificent minister the world has ever known. 13 books he wrote in the New Testament. And after all of that, he came to the point that he was able to say, there is something at work inside of me that is like at the marrow of my bones, and it's fighting everything that God is trying to do inside of me. And somehow people want to say, I know I'm okay, even if nothing's coming out into the world through me because I made a decision for Jesus when I was six. The Southern Baptist Church made me, told me so. It's like, I don't want you to stand before Jesus sometime into the future when he says, depart from me. There's something to this. Those of you that I haven't pierced with these barbs, if you haven't been convicted yet, I don't know what I can do for you. There's something deficient in the way that you understand Christianity. If you can just, like a matador, miss the barb. Now, this, this begs the question, if this seems so obvious, what are the hindrances to us being able to really feel and embrace this doctrine? And there's some hindrances that I, I think have to come into focus. And both of these are negative hindrances. And I'll explain that a little bit more, but the first one is decisional regeneration. I grew up, and most of you, grew up in churches and in Christian circles that told you your belief led to your salvation. Your believing led to you becoming regenerate. And that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says you were regenerated and then you started believing. Because you can't believe when you're dead. And so God makes us alive. And then we start believing. But that's not what we were taught. Decisional regeneration actually taught us quite the contrary. Now, in the, in the late 1800s, Charles G. Finney led an initiative where he reported 500,000 conversions in the northwestern, northeastern part of the United States that they now called the burned-over area. 500,000 conversions, 50,000 a year for 10 years. On his deathbed, he said, I feel like I brought a rushing reproach upon the church. Because he manipulated people. He developed these meeting principles, like the extended meeting principle, where a service would last for like two or three hours, but they'd play all this emotional music. He developed the aisle tests of soteriology. For 1,800 years, the church never asked people to come down an aisle to get saved. Never! He built, the, he built this anxious bench that he took from town to town. You had to come down and kneel, and that became the altar in a lot of the churches. Now, I can illustrate this shift in the late 1800s to decisional regeneration away from God actually saving us to now believing God just made us all savable by this illustration. Okay? You have Christ, the work of Christ on the cross at the bottom. The, the oval with all those dots. That took me a long time to figure that background, by the way. Um, all those dots in there represent everyone that has ever lived in the past is living now or will live in the future. In other words, Christ died for everybody, universally. Now, unless you're a universalist, you still believe there's a future for a place called hell as well as a future for a place called heaven. So you have to admit that if this is the system you hold to, 
Jesus, Jesus dying didn't actually save anybody. It potentially saved everybody, but it actually didn't save anyone without. So you take the death of Christ plus your choice or belief, you're going to heaven. You take the death of Christ minus your choice or belief, and it's not very hopeful for you. You're going to hell. Now the problem with that is, as generous as it feels, as, as emotional as we can get attached to it, that is a work, that is a, a work-based salvation. And you say, well, how? It's because the difference between heaven and hell is you, not the work of Christ, not God's purpose in redemptive history. It's you. And that's what causes many Christians who subscribe to this to, to believe they're better than other people. I had the sense to come out of the rain when you do not. But that's not true. And so decisional regeneration has gouged the eyes out of a lot of Christians because that system taught you that your assurance only has to go as far as to make sure that you believed. If you know you believed, if you believe in your belief, you're in like Flint. I don't even know what that saying means anymore. But you see, you see my point? What it did is just say, do I know I believe? This caused me misery for about a decade. Because at the end of every service, I used to sit over here on this side of the auditorium in our church. I prayed the prayer a thousand times. I'm not exaggerating. I went down the altar at least 10. They finally told me not to come so much. I asked to be baptized over and over again. You're thinking, why? Were you just making a show of it? It's like, no, I was tormented to think maybe I wasn't as sincere as I needed to be and I don't want to allow my eternity to hang in the balance of my uncertainty. So I just prayed it again, just in case. I started praying like, God, you know, I've said this to you over and over again, but I, would, I just want to ask you again, please save me, please forgive me of my sin, because everything boiled down to that pinpoint, did I believe? And it's caused people everywhere to just stop their assessment of their faith. Because all you have to do is to hope in your hope and to believe in your belief. So the, Decisional regeneration is a huge hindrance in our culture. The second one is the deceitfulness of sin. Now, like uh, J.I. Packer wrote in the beginning of Sin and Temptation, you need to prepare right now to go under the knife. And I, I, don't, I don't mean that maliciously. But when you read Owen you know he knows you. When you read it, you've never read someone that explains this abyss that you can get in from time to time and, the, and the, just the difficulty it is to carry this cross. Now, in Hebrews 3.13 is the centerpiece of Owen's whole treaty. He says, exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, Owen, write, Owen wrote a lot 
about the deceitfulness of sin. And he basically argues from the premise of what it means to deceive. The verb to deceive means to cause another person to believe what is right to be wrong or what is wrong to be right. And his whole argument proceeds on that logic. You don't know if you're being deceived because if you know you're being deceived, you're not being deceived any longer. Get it? This is how susceptible, this is our blind spot, in other words. This is what he's getting at. Now, as I've already said, American Christianity kind of lost its capacity to understand indwelling sin because we don't talk about it enough anymore. Therefore, we no longer possess the spiritual depth to grasp the full meaning of Owen's warning that J.I. Packer writes about. And so this is taken from Packer's introduction to sin temptation. He said, Christian living must therefore be founded on self-abhorrence and self-distrust because of indwelling sin's presence and power. Now he's quoting Owen. Constant self-abasement, condemnation, and abhor abhorrency. My dictionary wouldn't even allow that one. Um, abhorrency is another duty that is directly opposed unto the rule of sin in the soul. No frame of mind is a better antidote against the poison of sin. It is the soil wherein all grace will thrive and flourish. To keep our souls in a constant state of mourning and self-abasement is the most necessary part of our wisdom. That's not let go and let God. That takes a deeply humble, self-aware human being to say, I don't trust myself as far as I could throw myself. And it almost takes you back to Proverbs 3, right? Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. And don't trust yourself. Don't lean back on your understanding. And in all your ways, and make them straight. Jonathan Edwards wrote a lot like this, and I did a lot of reading with Edwards this week in his classic book, Religious Affections. He wrote in, about indwelling sin in such a gripping way, but it's still just a little bit beyond our grasp to fully, it seems strange and antiquated by standards today. Here's what Edwards wrote. He said, when a hypocrite is thus established in false hope, he has not those things to cause him to call his hope in question that oftentimes are the occasion of the doubting of the saints. He has not the cautious spirit, that great sense of the vast importance of a sure foundation, and that dread of being deceived. The comforts of the true saints increase awakening and caution and a lively sense how great a thing it is to appear before an infinitely holy, just, and omniscient judge. Wow. Those, those, even at Argonaut, they would have to have a special section for that. 
They would have to have, this, these would be all the bottles behind the glass because they don't want your fingerprints on them. But why are we not being moved this way anymore? You just heard some simple presuppositions. If you believe this, if you believe this, if you believe this, if you believe this, welcome to the party. And so this deceitfulness of sin, it just, it just, it causes us to think we're fine when we're not. It causes us to think we're not when we are. It totally turns us upside down. Now, the last thing I wanted to go through really quickly is the, the comfort of jars of clay, not the band. <laughs> the comfort of jars of clay. And I want you to look again where we started when Elise read in the beginning. He said, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7 and 6, For God, who said... Let light shine out of darkness. There it is again. God is the one initiating things. And we all know that in the natural order of things, light does not shine out of darkness. That's why we pay for flashbulbs and pay for, pay, uh, we pay for bulbs and batteries. And we put these things on our light because when it's dark, it's dark. But that's not what he's talking about. Light, God said... Let light shine out of darkness. A miraculous conversion is what he talked about. Has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He just described a miracle. Light radiating in the dark. He said he did that. He's the one that did that. But it's the seventh verse. I almost didn't do anything but just try to exegete that seventh verse this week. Then he says this. But we have this treasure. What treasure? Something God put in you to do something into the world. We have this treasure in jars of clay. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. What this is saying is that God ultimately pleased himself the most to not entirely sanctify you. There's something about this writhing that honors him more than in you, if you were perfect. Because he sure, certainly could have, in all of his power, made you entirely sinless in one moment. He could have made it so you didn't even come into the world sinful. But no, he makes you alive when you're dead. He causes your light, to, his light through you to shine in the darkness. And then he says, don't forget you're a clay pot. And the reason for that, he uses a hint clause in the Greek, and this is a little bit tricky. It's the greatest purpose, clause known in Greek language. He says, so that the surpassing power of what? Everything that's going on here is shown to be of God and not of you. Now carry your cross. When I, when I was growing up, my father always had season tickets to the Broncos. He always had tickets to CU. And CU's nemesis was always Nebraska. If you're from Nebraska, I'm sorry, but I don't like the red end. There were, they were rivalries, right? With Denver Broncos, it was always the Oakland uh, Raiders. If you live in Denver with an Oakland Raiders thing on the back of your car, take it off. You're not in Oakland. We hate Oakland. But this gets at the point. What is a rivalry? 
What is a rivalry? A rivalry is when two teams, unlike all the other teams in the conference, when they get together, that's a special game. McCarthy, up at uh, McCartney, up in Boulder, he used to red, do a red circle around the Nebraska games at the beginning of every year. He said, men, that's our game. Now, why are you talking about rivalry games? Well, here's my point. When you understand what's going on inside of you, when you understand the marvelous gift of God's grace, you become the rivalry game. When God helps you beat you, it's like stomping on Nebraska. It's like Tom Jackson running down the sideline doing whatever he did in front of Madden. It's we're win, we win. But you see, it's not you just complaining about political parties. It's not you just complaining about churches. It's about God saving you from you. That's amazing. You're a clay jar. And as you go through life, it's like God's providence is just taking a hasp and knocking flakes off of it. And before very long, the candle on the inside is just beaming out into the world so that all the surpassing power is shown to be of him. That's the nuance I'm trying to share with you today. Because I've seen some of you. I, I, I was conversing with James earlier this week, and he says, man, I've had a lot of people come to me since last week. I said, I have too, thanks a lot. <laughs> and it's when you're here, that seventh verse of Second Corinthians 4 is like a lifeline. I'm just a clay pot. And as much as I doubt, as much as I struggle, as much as I stumble, I'm going to get back up. I'm going to trust you again because I don't have anywhere else to go. I've told some of you this. I went to seminary so I could disprove Christianity. I didn't think I could do it if I didn't learn the languages. I've got three degrees. I've got a doctoral degree in theology. And I'm still trying to disprove it. And it's just like the apostles. When Jesus says, you want to go away? And they said, where, where are we going to go? I'm trapped. Because this is the finest system of truth that explains our world. And it's time that we repent from our apathy and our difference. And you know what? It comes out of the moral of you knowing that God really does love you and have a wonderful plan for your life. Not because some college kid told you that out of a pamphlet, but because time after time after time, he went in and saved you from you. And that means something. That makes us brothers and sisters. That makes us sacrificial in making sure that ministry in this city never stops. It makes us sure that, okay, put the cross on my back again. I don't like it. It rubs me the wrong way. But where else, where else am I going to go? See, this isn't happy slappy. It never was. John Owen and John, Jonathan Edwards, forgotten more than we all know. And both of them said the same thing. 
If you don't get this, there is a very, 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 very good chance that one day you're going to look into Jesus' eyes and he's going to say, I don't know you. Don't do that. Make sure it's real. Make sure you can hold on to it. Make sure that you know that it's him that's in you. All right, I went long. I don't know if we have questions. I imagine we have a million, but we're going to take a couple. How are we to contend with non-Christians who believe that good works are more useful than any religious belief and thus believe that belief isn't necessary? Well, number one, agree with them. There are so many Christians that say they believe and they are horrible human beings. And our culture sees it all the time. They preach Jesus, and then they screw them over in their business deals. They preach Jesus, and they treat them as the worst employers and supervisors they've ever had. They bring a Bible and put it on their desk, and they lie on their expense reports. They got it. The question I always ask, do you think a person can do an act of righteousness, righteousness by accident? I say, well, wow, that seemed kind of strange. I don't believe you can. Because if you don't love Jesus, if you don't understand what God's purpose is in the gospel, why are you doing it? A lot of people, they do it because they know what comes around goes around. If I'm nice to you, you're going to be nice to me. And they do better things than a lot of us do. C.S. Lewis has a chapter in, uh, oh, come on. What's the famous book he has? My brain, I, what's that? Mere Christianity. And he talks about these two women that get saved. One of them's really mean, and one of them's really nice. And the mean one gets saved. And even in her sanctification, she doesn't become as nice as the one that's not saved. But he says she's improved because of the Spirit and the Gospel. That is helpful. I think that answers this question, too. All right. Next one. What does it look like to keep our souls in a constant state of mourning? Well, I think it looks like paying attention. It, it looks like a self-awareness. I just bit my tongue. It looks like a self-awareness that doesn't give you a mulligan. Even in golf, it doesn't give you the right to just bump your ball around and lie. There's something that's saying, you or me, Russ. When you're doing a business deal and it's a little bit off, you've slanted it, you're not telling exactly a lie, but you're not really telling the truth and it's just like J.I. Packer, a half-truth presented as a whole truth is a complete untruth. And you know it, but there's something about a tender heart that can hear God's voice. Really? Really. And it's what Edwards was talking about. Standing before an infinitely holy, infinitely powerful, infinitely omniscient God. And you can't. It just starts moving you. It just starts bringing you into the state of mourning because you're able to say, God, I can think of a number of things that without your grace, you should torch me right where I stand. 
But because you're not, I just bask in your forgiveness yet again. And so knowing yourself doesn't let you very far. Why do you think Jesus, when he started talking about the internal beatitudes, I think it's the second one, he said, blessed are those who mourn. That's inconsolable mourning. And he's not saying we're always Eeyore walking around crying in our beer. He's talking about a person who never fully recovers, understanding how bad he is, understanding what he was saved from and being saved from now. And so I don't think it looks like self-flagellation. I think it actually looks like a person who's aware. Last question. See, I knew there was going to be three today. Um, to keep our souls in a state of constant mourning and self-abasement seems to be another self-work towards our own salvation. It would be if you were manufacturing it. Or worse, in some circles, it's manufactured for you. That's horrible. Some of you, I know that you've been there. You, you're in circles. You go into a community group, and the very first question they ask is, when did you look at porn? When was the last time you masturbated? It's like, I'm getting up and leaving. Thank you very much. Who gave them a license to simply say that? Now, is there a purpose for depth and interaction with one another? Yeah, but some circles can get really pietistic. We were that way for several years before God graciously straightened me. He took me to the woodshed first. But in the end, there's something that isn't working. This is the fruit of the Spirit's work. It's not you. But there's some circles that take it upon themselves to make you pay. Towards our own salvation, how does, how does grace fit in this posture of thinking? Does thinking this way blind us to God's grace? No, quite the contrary. It makes you more aware of it than you've ever been. Not because you're faking it. Not because you're trying to pretend like you're sad. Not because, like the Pharisees, when they fasted, they disheveled their appearance because they wanted everybody to know how miserable they were. He said, that's all. That's all they get. That's the only reward they're going to get. When you fast, clean yourself up, and your father who sees in secret sees. So you have a person that is self-afflicted, but totally content with God himself being the only one that knows. We've all seen this, right? People that make bombastic gifts People to always make sure that you know they're the ones that were benefactors. You know that you, you, you get it because you know they want it to come back. And Jesus said, just stop. And so there's a lot to this. I, I, I get the tone and the nature of that question, but I can just tell you that this doesn't blind the eyes of grace. It actually focuses them, I promise. All right, I've gone far too long. Let me... Um, pray and we're going to do our communion i didn't even finish the last page of my notes either um you can thank me later okay let's pray uh, father I, I i know i've i've tried to lighten this up a little bit so we can land this thing um because quite honestly i don't i don't want a thousand emails this week and i know james doesn't either but there's something here jonathan edwards was no fool John, Owens was, John Owen was not a simpleton. But they understood the morrow of true Christianity. They understood why 
another British theologian promised his congregation, you will never get out of Romans 7 as long as I am your preacher. Those meant something. Most of the time, we join churches because they have the right programs, because they have something cool for our kids, and there's nothing wrong with those things. But if they don't tell us about our sin, then we will never understand your grace because they really work in relationship to one another. And when our understanding of sin is shallow, our understanding of grace is just as shallow. Direct proportion. And so help us. We're going into a, a few moments of self-reflection. And I just ask that you would open our hearts to all those blind spots that Owen understood so well. When he makes the statement that sin is never less quiet than when it appears to be the most quiet. So I think that that's a little unnerving. It's like one of the horror movies we watch where we know someone's in the house and it could go really bad. But we don't live with that same guardedness. So help us, we pray. We trust you to bring our hearts back to that. I pray that there would be an unbelievably sweet consolation brought into the hearts of your people here today. And for those that are under the deceit of sin, those that have had their awareness darkened by decisional regeneration, I pray that you would just wake them up. Bring them to. Help them to see the truth before it's too late. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can find more audio as well as study questions and sermon notes at l2church.com. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us a message through the contact form on our website. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.